As Hogan mentioned last night, Rohatsu means the eighth day of the month, actually the lunar month originally, the twelfth lunar month, which we now designate at the eighth as the eighth of, of December. We don't actually know, of course, when the Buddha was enlightened. You could say that the Buddha's enlightenment occurred outside of time. But it helps us, practitioners in the world of time, to have a fixed day for observing and celebrating and incorporating within our being this wonderful occurrence. If the Buddha hadn't become enlightened, none of us would be here. It helps to have a day to celebrate and a week, an entire week, to purposely take a pause in our very complex modern lives in order to go deeper, deeper into the teachings of the ancestors and deeper into ourselves, into that which is not yet clear, that which is not yet clear in us or not functioning completely in our lives. The Buddha's awakening is a truly wonderful occurrence along with the awakening of scores of people in many different cultures over the last 2,560 years. Wonderful because it promises that everyone can awaken. It tells us that anyone, everyone, has the ability to break through the suffering created by their mind and find peace of mind. There's a beautiful story in the Pali Canon Uh, The Buddha had one ordained disciple who we we would call like um, differently abled, maybe, in modern times, Um, not too intelligent, and really struggled with the teachings. And the Buddha just gave him a piece of white cloth and said, handle it and see what happens. And it became dirtier and dirtier. And through that, this person had an insight into how the original purity of our being is clouded over and was awakened just by handling a piece of cloth and watching it change. You don't have to be born as a prince in India. You have all the equipment necessary for this undertaking. You have a human body and a human mind. You were born somewhere in the human realm, which is the most propitious realm for practice enlightenment. The human realm is sandwiched, as many of you know, between the three realms, we call them the lower realms, of more intense suffering, and the two realms, called higher realms, of not enough suffering in terms of our focus on enlightenment, on awakening. The three realms of more intense suffering we call the realms of hell, which the Buddha defined as unremitting suffering in body and mind without hope of relief. And the realm of the hungry ghosts of constant, unsatiable desire, which we've all experienced, if only in wandering into the kitchen 
feeling I need something to eat and then searching through cupboard after cupboard and through the refrigerator and through the little drawers in the bottom of the refrigerator and looking for something to eat, something that will satisfy when that is not what food is intended to do, to satisfy the longing, the deep longing of the heart. And the realm of the hungry ghosts, and then the animal realm, the realms of living by instinct and having a poor understanding of cause and effect. So these three realms, the realms of hell, unremitting suffering, realms of the hungry ghosts, unremitting desire, and the animal realm, not understanding cause and effect. In the two realms of not suffering enough, we have all that we need to live. We have more than adequate food, water, shelter, clothing, and above all, entertainment. In those two realms of not enough suffering, which we call the heavenly realms, the realm of the gods, and the realm of the fighting or jealous gods, in those two realms of not enough suffering, the recognition that I am still suffering can be covered up, but only for a while. There's so much abundance that we can be endlessly feel like we're satisfied when we're not. The scriptures say that when the gods see the first wrinkle, the first gray hair, they begin to fall, fall, fall out of the heavenly realms. We could say, because I often think of the realm of the gods as the movie stars that are currently successful or the politicians that are currently successful, whatever realm, where people have been lifted up and can amass wealth and houses and adulation. And then below that, the realm of people who are jealous of that realm, of people in that realm and are hoping to advance to that realm. So we could say they, the, in current times, it is when the gods first get bad reviews, when they're banned from social media, or when they have their first positive COVID test. The belief, I am not suffering, is subject to impermanence. It is conditioned and thus subject to impermanence. This word that the Buddha used, unconditioned, is really important to ponder by itself. What is the unconditioned? And are we trying to make our bodies unconditioned, our lives unconditioned, and somehow permanent? Once we reach a certain state, ideal state, are we trying to hold on to that and therefore suffering? The benefit of the three realms of too much suffering, the hell realms, the hungry ghosts, and the animal realm is that they compel us to search for relief, for escape. The benefit of the two so-called realms of not enough suffering, of the, he- the heavenly realm of the gods and the fighting asuras, fighting, trying to fight their way up to the realm of the gods, <coughs> is that 
we living in the human realm just, just below them have enough leisure and resource, resources, including time, to practice. So enough suffering and enough resources to be able to practice. Human beings are in a unique situation to be able to practice and awaken. Please, no matter how you feel about your individual current life, rejoice in being born in the human realm. Rejoice in your path, your life leading you to a path, having found a path, and teachers and a sangha. This is unbelievably good fortune, which we know by listening and watch, listening to and watching the news from all over the world. How fortunate we are, no matter what's happened in our life. Rohatsu is an occurrence that we celebrate because it promises us that anyone, anyone, everyone, has the ability to awaken. Anyone, everyone has the ability to see through the screen of thoughts and emotions arising from the incorrect notion of myself and to experience the freedom of a life that can flow around obstructions. Everyone has the ability to find peace in experiencing each moment of life. Everyone has that ability. Every human has the necessary equipment, a body and a mind. Education, intelligence, physical beauty, wealth, various talents, all of these factors do not matter. A body and a mind and the impetus and opportunity to find lasting relief from suffering. That's all that's needed. Why is this all that we need? Because we are already supplied with what we are searching for. More than supplied, we are what we are searching for. We were born into it. We were born into what seems like individuality, but is in its depth profoundly not. It permeates us. It flows with. It flows as the blood in our veins. It is closer than the cells in our body. It is evident in every cell in our body, in each eyelash, in every moment, even in the welter of thoughts that hide it from our awareness. Koenigio tells us, although it is unattainable, it penetrates this whole body. That's why we call it our original nature, our face before our grandparents were even born. We don't have to go to India or find the perfect teacher to find it. Our original face before the Buddha was born. We can find it, we can open our awareness to it, 
anywhere, anytime. In Sashin, we have the opportunity to maximize, optimize the conditions for that discovery. Even better, we have all had glimpses of what I'm calling temporarily it, or original nature. It is not an it, but in order to talk about it at all, we call it an it. We can glimpse it anytime, anywhere, because it's always here. And it's always right now. That's where it lives. That's why mindfulness is so powerful. Mindfulness has become popularized and um, maybe trite in a way. But mindfulness is actually a profound teaching to bring mindfulness right now to your right thumb. Opening your awareness to your right thumb. And then to recollect, another powerful word in Theravada practice, to recollect when we're not doing that, when we're on autopilot, when we're eating and not tasting, when we're washing our bowls and not aware of the temperature of the water. In that way, we can be aware of it, begin to be aware of it, all the time. It is always here and it is always now, in what we call now. It, is, it always has been and it always will be. Once in a while, the curtain parts and we fall briefly into what lies behind all that is continually manifesting. We call these peak moments. Many people are aware of Abraham Maslow, who was a psychologist, who talked about, and there's some speculation this was because of some time he spent with indigenous tribes in the U.S. He described a hierarchy of basic human needs, beginning with physiologic needs like water, food, shelter, and so on, and then ascending through the need for safety, the need for belonging and love, to set what he called self-actualization, which is by itself interesting. And then at the top of his pyramid of human needs was transcendence. So transcending in some way the suffering of being a human being. And he included peak experiences in that level of transcendence, writing that peak experiences include a sense of, this is a quote, wonder, awe, reverence, humility, surrender, and even worship before the greatness of the experience. And that during peak experiences, reality is perceived as, quote, truth, Goodness, beauty, wholeness, aliveness, uniqueness, perfection, completion, justice, 
simplicity, richness, effortlessness, playfulness, and self-sufficiency. There's been some research on peak experiences, but surprisingly not much. So we have the realm of spiritual practice describing these experiences in the spiritual context, and then we have the peak experience literature, which is actually quite sparse. But this is some, some of the descriptions of what a person could perceive simultaneously during a peak experience. Loss of judgment to time and space. The feeling of being one whole and harmonious self, free of dissociation or inner conflict. The feeling of functioning effortlessly, <coughs> easily, without strain or struggle, also termed by another researcher, flow. Being without inhibition, fear, doubt, and self-criticism. Note, being without self-criticism. It doesn't mean being without a conscience. Everybody needs a conscience. But without self-criticism. Complete mindfulness of the present moment without influence of past or expected future experiences. Gosh, that sounds familiar. Complete mindfulness of the present moment without influences of past or expected future experiences. So we term that without rumination over the past or blame for, the inner, for our past and without anxiety for the future. So all of that sounds like the utterances that emerge in people's attempts to describe spiritual openings in the religious literature, including Zen. This very land is the lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Sitting under the open sky, weightless as a flame. How would it be to feel that our life is weightless as a flame? What is the weight that has lifted? In this luminosity, usual people and sages, deluded and enlightened, are one. In the midst of impermanence, this luminosity is unobstructed. Koenejo again. Unobstructed by what? The heavy weight of time, Space, inner conflict, fear, self-doubt, or self-criticism. Those peak experiences are glimpses. They let us see what is possible, what is possible for every single one of us. And those glimpses often have called us to this practice. Me to my seat and you to your seats. In this zendo, or your seat at home, have called you to this session. The Buddha's enlightenment is an occurrence to celebrate because it promises that everyone can awaken, 
Everyone can experience what the Buddha called the unconditioned. Unconditioned by what? See, each of these single words is something to investigate deeply in our own life. Unconditioned by what? By the conditioning of our life, the conditioning of our body, the conditioning of our heart, the conditioning of our mind. Everyone can transcend the conditioning of their particular life, positive or negative. Positive conditioning can be as afflictive as negative conditioning. We can transcend the conditioning of our parents' lives, of all of our ancestors' lives, freeing them at the exact same time we free ourselves, perhaps freeing all of existence. Is that what the first bodhisattva vow means? Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them from my inexhaustible delusions. Is that what the first bodhisattva vow means? Master Hungzhir writes, Our house is a single field, clean, vast, and lustrous, clearly self-illuminated. When the spirit is vacant without conditions, when awareness is serene without cogitation, then Buddhas and ancestors appear and disappear transforming the world. Amid living beings is the original place of nirvana. How amazing is it that all people have this but cannot polish it into great clarity. Our house is a single field, clean, vast, and lustrous, clearly self-illuminated. When the spirit is vacant without conditions, when awareness is serene, without quadratation, then Buddhas and ancestors appear and disappear, transforming the world. Amid living beings is the original place of nirvana. How amazing is it that all people have this but cannot polish it into great clarity. How fortunate we all are to have the time and the place to polish into greater clarity. Into greater clarity about no time and no place. This echoes the Buddha statement at the moment of his enlightenment as reported in the Mahayana tradition. I now see that all sentient beings possess the wisdom and virtues of the enlightened ones. But because of false conceptions and attachments, they do not realize it. The story of the Buddha's awakening also tells us that to take a peak moment and open it into a continuous experience, or even an intermittently continuous experience, takes hard work. I'm going to read from The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nanamoli, which uses um, portions of the Pali text, the Pali canon, to describe the Buddha's, this chapter is the struggle for enlightenment. Before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought after what was also subject to these things. 
Then I thought, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, and seeing the danger in them, I sought after the unborn, the unaging, the unailing, the deathless, the sorrowless, undefiled supreme surcease of bondage, nirvana. The Buddha studied under several teachers. He studied under Alara Kalama for years, we believe, for years. And then he arrived at the place where he said, it is not only Alara Kalama that has faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and understanding, but I too have these faculties. Suppose I strove to realize the teaching that he declares to enter upon and dwell in, realizing it himself through direct knowledge. So the Buddha said, I have all the conditions that Alara Kalama has, so why can't I realize what he realized? And so he studied for a number of years and realized what Alara Kalama had realized, and Alara Kalama invited him to teach with him. But the Buddha examined his mind and realized that what he had realized under Alara Kalama had not settled all his doubts or led to complete peace of heart and mind. So he sought another teacher, Udaka Ramaputta, and he practiced and realized the teachings of Udaka Ramaputta after many years and was invited to co-teach, but again knew that there was still something unresolved within and left that community to go into the forest and practice extreme asceticism. So we have some accounts in the Buddha's own words about that period of time. I dwelt in such awe-inspiring abodes as orchard shrines, woodland shrines, and tree shrines, which can make the hair stand up. And while I I dwelt there, a deer would approach me, or a peacock would knock off a branch, or the wind would rustle the leaves. Then I thought, surely this is fear and dread coming. And I thought, why do I dwell in constant expectation of the fear and dread? Why not subdue that fear and dread while maintaining the posture I am in when it comes to me? And there are many accounts of the, for example, the Thai forest monks who practice on the charnel grounds, accounts of sounds, animals coming around, their hair standing up on end, and sitting exactly the way the Buddha taught. Subdue that fear and dread while maintaining the posture I am in when it comes to me. And while I walked, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither stood nor sat nor lay down until I had subdued that fear and dread. So our temptation is to move, run away, change our posture. While I stood, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither walked nor sat nor lay down till I had subdued that fear and dread. While I sat, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither walked nor stood nor lay down until I had subdued that fear and dread. Then he talks about some insights that he had about um, a wet piece of wood being lit. There's so many little 
um, realizations that he talks about in this stage of his life. So after these three similes that occurred to him, I thought, suppose with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my mind. So that might be familiar to you. Then, as a strong man might seize a weaker by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my mind. Sweat ran from my armpits while I did so. So at ZCLA, I went through a stage of practice like this, not, not sweating, but with snot running down my face and tears and completely hoarse from yelling moo. Though tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established, yet my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful effort. But such painful feelings as arose in me gained no power over my mind. I thought, suppose I practice the meditation that is without breathing. I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths in my mouth and nose. When I did so, there was a loud sound of winds coming from my ear holes, as there is a loud sound when the smith's bellows are blown. I stopped the in-breaths and out-breaths with my mouth and nose and ears. When I did so, violent winds racked my head as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword. And then there were violent pains in my head as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband. And then violent winds carved up my belly as a clever butcher or his apprentice carves up an ox's belly with a sharp knife. And then there was a violent burning in my belly as if two strong men had seized a weaker man by both arms and were roasting him over a pit of live coals. And each time, though tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness established, yet my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful effort. But such painful feeling as arose in me gained no power over my mind. Now when deities saw me, they said, the monk Gautama is dead. Other deities said, The monk Gautama is not dead, he is dying. Other deities said, The monk Gautama is neither dead nor dying. The monk Gautama is an arahant, a saint, for such is the way of saints. Then I thought, suppose I cut off food entirely. Sound familiar? Then deities came to me and said, Good sir, do not entirely cut off food. If you do so, we shall inject divine food into your pores, and you will live on that. I thought, if I claim to be completely fasting and these deities inject divine food into my pores and I live on that, then I shall be lying. I dismissed them saying, there is no need. I I thought, suppose I take very little food, say a handful each time, whether it is bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup, sound familiar? And I did so. And as I did so, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. My limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems because of eating so little. My backside became like a camel's hoof. The projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads. My ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. The gleam of my eyes sunk far down in their sockets and looked like the gleam of water sunk far down in a deep well. My scalp shriveled and withered as a green gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. If I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone, too. And if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin, too. 
for my belly skin cleaved to my backbone. If I made water or evacuated my bowels, I fell over on my face there. If I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its root fell away from my body as I rubbed because of eating so little. So we're aware of people who attempt to find relief of suffering by starving themselves. I thought, whenever a a monk or Brahmin has felt in the past or will feel in the future or feels now painful, racking, piercing feelings due to striving, it can equal this but not exceed it. But by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction higher than the human state, worthy of the noble one's knowledge and vision. Might there be another way to enlightenment? I thought of a time when my Sakyan father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual desires. This is when he was a child and his father was um, was plowing the fields and he was lying under a tree. So this was the next stage of his practice, the balance to the striving that he had engaged in before. That's the next chapter of the Enlightenment story of the Buddha. And it speaks to what we've talked about a lot before, that there are times when we have to be very determined and practice continuously and try to corral our mind and learn to concentrate so that we can penetrate with that concentrated mind deeper than the illusions in our mind. And then there are times when we need to relax and open and sit in open awareness And that's the time when, if we've penetrated deep enough, insights may arise. Wisdom may flow from the unceasing flow of Prajnaparamita and erupt through our body and then eventually into our mind. And then we can get fuzzy and dull again and then it's time to concentrate again and to work really hard. And then, when we discover we're working too hard and we're overwrought, then to relax again. It's not as though we can skip these stages. We have to enter states of total and intense concentration, but not remain there. We also have to learn to relax the body and the mind. This is what Guagu teaches in Silent Illumination, which is our text for Ango in the section priming the body and mind priming the body and mind for deep practice he says preparing the body and mind prepares the way to and builds a transition from activity to stillness there are certain areas of the body that tend to get very tense and then he has a guided meditation which corresponds to the buddhist teaching of the four foundations of mindfulness which is the basis of the guided meditation that I usually teach uh, during the morning part of Zazen in Sashin. Discovering and softening areas of bodily tension. 
And that's why we now incorporate a session of body practice into sashin. Although it is true that this very land is the lotus land and that luminosity is unobstructed in impermanence and that many people, large or small, long or short, square or round, are all displays of unobstructed luminosity. I suppose by square they mean like Legos or something? I'm not sure. Luminosity is is unobstructed and many people, large or small, long or short, square or round, are all displays of unobstructed luminosity. My, definitely my 11-year-old grandson believes that Lego people are a display of unobstructed luminosity and asks for more for Christmas. To realize this thoroughly takes a lifetime of practice. Isn't that wonderful that we can practice throughout our lifetime? Isn't that wonderful that we can practice throughout our lifetime? We can continue to learn and to unlearn from the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We can continue to learn from that which is always present and always calls to us to come home. From the teachings that give us unfailing guidance along the way and from the sentient beings that support us as we journey towards full awakening together. The path is completely open. The Dharma gates are completely open. We just have to keep walking forward with determination and perseverance and curiosity. Please continue to practice with determination and faith and perseverance and curiosity. In this practice, we have to have faith in the Buddha's path, that the Buddha did follow a path and did become awakened. And we have to have faith that that path still will lead to awakening. And we have to have faith in perhaps the most difficult aspect, which is in ourselves, that we can follow that path and we can awaken. Please continue to practice with relaxation when you discover extra tension in the body or mind. A nice way to do it is just check when you first sit down for a sitting period, just especially the face and the shoulders and the belly. Just check, extra tension or holding. Let it relax. Still sitting upright, but all the unnecessary tension. And remember that what you are looking for is already present within you and within all of creation. Heed it and follow its call. Thank you.